Psalm 24, then, is a great psalm to start the new year. Uh, This psalm was written, almost certainly written originally by David, to celebrate what he saw as the Lord's entrance into the center of the people of God, the city of God, Jerusalem, Zion. It was composed on the occasion when the ark of God was brought from where it had been, out in the countryside, right into the center of Jerusalem, right in the center of God's people. Now, the ark was representative of the presence of God. It was like saying we're getting God tangibly, concretely, practically right in the middle of his people. We're putting God at the center. That's what it meant for the ark to come in. It was the place where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled for forgiveness of sins. It was the place where the priests could actually meet with God. Indeed, in David's tabernacle time, it was more easygoing slightly than, uh, than that. People could go in. David himself would go in to the presence of God, where they knew their sins were forgiven, where they could sense the glory of God right amongst them, and probably where priests would go to get direction and prophets for God's people right from time in God's presence and come out with understanding and clarity about where God's people should go. So this was a psalm about God who'd been amongst his people becoming, but it had been a bit peripheral to be honest, becoming central, welcoming him back into the centre. And I think it's quite an appropriate psalm, not only to begin a new year, but to come to after a period like Christmas and the New Year period. I mean, which is fun usually, it's quite nice, but it isn't a time I, I never feel when God is very central we talk about it a lot. We do all the Christmas shenanigans, don't we? It's about Jesus being born, all that business. But, <laughs> which is great business, of course. But, but in the end, there's a lot of other things that crowd our lives out. There's a lot of uh, choosing presents, buying presents, opening presents, working out how presents work, helping other people. If you've got little people around, build a Lego castle or something, which takes all day. You know... You've got all that sort of thing. You've got all the food to be eaten, which has to be got rid of. And, you know, that turkey has to be finished by the end of the week. You've got all the uh, sort of television to watch, all the films you wanted to see. You get probably then a little bit excited about the prospect of a few bargains. So you go and queue for two or three hours in cars to even get into... This is a personal experience. To even get (laughs) into a place to try and buy something and then two or three hours to get out again. And... Although, actually, we had a very good Christmas, to be honest, but it's not hard to see that God gets a bit peripheral if you're not careful. It's true for all of us. And this psalm is actually about celebrating, bringing him right back into the centre amongst his people. It's also got deeper and even more profound meanings, as we'll see before we finish this morning. But let's just read. I'll read with you Psalm 24. Let me read it to you. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. 
Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Now, there's a a good principle with the Old Testament, New Testament thing that we have in our Bibles, and it's this, that first of all, in the Old Testament, it's the natural, and then in the New Testament, the New Covenant, we see the spiritual reality of that. Sometimes put it like this way, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And so, often what was there in a natural way in the Old Testament, is seen to have a far bigger and more significant um, interpretation in the New Testament, in the New Covenant after Jesus has come. And in fact, much of the Old Testament is a shadow or a, a type of the spiritual reality that's coming with Jesus in the New Testament. And that would be true of what we've just read. And in the New Testament, in the New Covenant age we live in, after Jesus has come to earth, This psalm, particularly the last part of it, is seen as a prophetic psalm about Jesus, the Lord of glory, entering heaven and, I might add, entering amongst his people. We'll get to that as well in a few minutes. After Jesus' death, he rose again from the dead. He was ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this psalm was seen by the church in the New Testament and beyond for the last 2,000 years as a prophetic celebration of Jesus, the victorious, risen Redeemer, the King of glory, who has come into the presence of God afresh, seated at the right hand of God, victorious over sin and Satan and the sickness and the devil and all his works and over death and hell, just victorious and risen. First and foremost then, from our point of view, this is a prophetic anticipation of Jesus and all he's done for us. And we're going to get in a few minutes to look at that and to apply it briefly, see it in its big picture, Jesus going into heaven, but apply it also to our lives, about him coming into our lives and into our church life. But before we do that, I want to remind you of the first verses that we read a few minutes ago. I think they're going to go up on the screen. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 say this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. This psalm starts with that amazing statement that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. David is saying the God we have amongst us, the God who we're bringing in and celebrating this morning is the creator of everything. He is the possessor of all things. He is the one who made everything around us. And I don't want to back off from saying that today, saying it loud and clear in 21st century Britain, with all that our culture says around us, that everything's driven by chance, there's no God, and that it's all sort of a chance-driven evolutionary product. We are and everything else is. That is not true. There is a God. There is a creator. He made it all. It was made for his glory. It was made according to his will. He owns everything. He is the sustainer and possessor of the whole earth. The God who made everything is the God we worship. 
And actually, there is an amazing truth echoing in this psalm, that that same God who made all things is a personal God. It's a God who reveals himself to people, who wants us to know him, wants to be with us, wants us to know something of his presence. He's a God of revelation, a God of communication. And it's important to understand that. It's important not to back off the doctrine of creation. The doctrine of creation is certainly in the early chapters of Genesis, but that's not alone where it is. It's all throughout the Bible. It's here at the beginning of this psalm. All through the Bible, there is a fundamental first principle that the God we're dealing with is the creator, the one God, the one who was never made. I'm chatting with my grandsons over Christmas, and it's good to do. They're getting a bit older. Charlie is 15 today. And uh, it's our oldest grandson. He's quite old. He started his GCSEs and doing various things. And, you know, he's finding at school people talk about God. He's doing religious studies and whatever. And we're just talking. Oh, my friends always say, well, who made God? I mean, what an old question. I had that when I was his age at school. Nobody made God. There has to be some original prime motivator. If you don't believe in God, if you're an atheist, agnostic, you still have a sense that something started, even if it's a, a, a very vague, meaningless start, a big bang or something. But actually, for the Christian, from the Bible, it's very clear. God has no beginning and no end. He is the prime motivator. He is the intentional designer of everything around us. There is a God, and he started it all happening, and that makes far more sense, far more sense, than to say there isn't a God. That is what harmonizes. There is a design. There's an intentionality about it. He is the creator. We, as human beings, are alienated from him. We have been disconnected and disorientated by our own rebellion and confusion and sin. But God wants us back with him. Indeed, he wants to dwell with us and come and meet with us. That is the glorious message of the gospel. And that's the message that comes right through the whole Bible. It's here in this psalm. The God who made everything is a God who will dwell amongst his people and dwell with you. Actually, verse 1 is a good way to start this year for any of us. Just read it again. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns the whole world. Nowhere and no one is outside his jurisdiction. That's good for you to know as you start 2015. There is nowhere and no one who is outside the jurisdiction of God. God is still on the throne. Amen? He is still on the throne. And, as an old chorus says, he will remember his own. Whatever sort of battles and struggles you have ahead of you or have had behind you, God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. He has not abandoned the world... It's his world. All of us belong to him. We are not our own masters. He owns us, if I can put it that way. We belong to him. We will be accountable to him and answerable to him. Do not think evil is in control of the world. Evil is real and it's scary sometimes, but it is not in control of the world. The devil is not in control. God is. Overall, sovereign over all things. His divine purpose still stands He is on the throne. And actually, Jesus, who we're going to focus on for the rest of our morning, is 
also on the throne, at the right hand of the Father, the victorious king, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting until all his enemies are the footstool of his feet. And so we're going to look at that now, just at that application of Jesus from this psalm. Although we need to do it, remembering the one we're talking about is the creator of all things, the God who made everything. So let's look at the first of the three things I want to look at. The victorious Christ enters heaven. Put that up, perhaps, uh, if you could, on the PowerPoint. The first point, the victorious Christ enters heaven. As I've already said, for 2,000 years, Christians have seen the second part of this psalm, particularly from verse 7 to 10, as a prophetic celebration of Jesus, risen, victorious, ascended, and entering heaven, the most holy place. You see, the title, the Lord is used a lot for Yahweh, for God in the Old Testament. It's a common way of talking about the one true God, the Lord. What's interesting is in the New Testament, that title is used an awful lot, mostly for Jesus. So often in the New Testament, we find God designated as Father, for example, or God, or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the term, the specific God term, Lord, is linked to Jesus. He is the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this psalm... Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle, is Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord victorious in battle. What battle was that? That was the battle with sin and Satan and judgment and all the filth and guilt and pain that was ours. The battle of the cross. Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. When he had absorbed, as it were, the the, the wrath of God, taken that on himself. When he had dealt with our sin, he rose victorious in the power of an endless life and ascended back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Let's look at a couple of verses in Hebrews that just illustrate that. You could put them up. Hebrews 1 verse 3, about Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. There you are. Jesus was the sun. He was God, become man. After he had had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus, having provided purification for sins, went back into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then Hebrews 9 verse 24, again if you put it up. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. So Jesus went right in to the very presence of God, the most holy place, and appears there for us. In the New Testament, in our Bibles, the cross is not remembered morbidly. Sometimes Christians are a bit inclined to to not portray this quite accurately. We're going to remember Jesus' death later on, but yes, it was a terrible death, and it was something to be sober and And even, you know, sad to see what the price Jesus had to pay for my sin. But actually, the point in the New Testament is Jesus isn't on a cross now. Jesus is risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the victor. He is triumphant. And actually, we need to keep that theme in our praise and worship and in our understanding that, yes, he did die once, but that's not where he's not on a cross now. 
He's risen and victorious and triumphant. He is Lord. He's led captivity captive. And one day we will see him face to face. Indeed, one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this psalm is about that victorious fact that Jesus has, as it were, broken out of death and entered back into heaven as the victorious warrior king. Now let's talk about the second point. The victorious Christ enters our hearts. This is a bit tied, in a way, to the first point. The victorious Christ enters our hearts. Now Jesus, of course, didn't go through all he went through for his own sake. After all, Jesus was very God. We've been singing that in some of our carols in the last couple of weeks. He was very God. He lived forever, eternity past, in the presence of the Father. He had every right to be in God's presence. So all that he went through was for us, not for himself. This triumphant entry was on our behalf. This psalm reflects the fact that to get into the presence of God, to go up the holy hill, you need pure ha- clean hands and a pure heart. And nobody really fulfills that. Nobody really has got the purity and clarity of spirit and conscience without any sin to be able to boldly and openly go into the presence of a holy God. That's our problem. It's a sin problem. It's what's cut us off from the holy God who created us. But God wants us to reconnect with him. So he had to get rid of the sin problem. And one of the ways he did that was by sending his son who became a man, Jesus. Why we do celebrate the incarnation. Quite a rightly celebrate it at Christmas. And Jesus came not just to live or to show a good way to live, but to die. And then having died for our sin, died as our representative, borne our sorrows, borne our griefs, borne our guilt, he rose again victorious and was able to go back once and for all, once for all of us, back into the presence of God. Let's look at Hebrews 9 verse 12, which I think is on the PowerPoint. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus' victory was truly our victory. A man went back into the presence of God and was accepted victoriously and seated at the right hand of the Father. There is a man in heaven now. There is a human, a person. Jesus was very God, but he was truly man. And he has risen from the dead and gone back into the presence of the Father. He's our forerunner. He's our representative. In him, we too share his victory. We are seated with him in heavenly places. In Christ, when you are in Christ, when he is in you and you are in him, you share everything he has, everything he has. His victory, his position, you share it. Jesus is our representative. He's our great high priest. Whatever picture you want to use, our forerunner, he's in heaven for us. He didn't do it for his own sake. He wasn't to prove some point. He didn't need to. He did it for us. And that is glorious news at the beginning of a new year, isn't it? Your life is hidden with Christ. You are seated with him in heavenly places. Now, if you're going to benefit from that, you have got to 
have welcomed this king into your life. You've got to have engaged with it. It doesn't just happen automatically. There needs to be a faith step. The locked gates of your heart need to open up to welcome him into your heart. That's how you benefit from the fact that he's gone through the gates of heaven, as it were, on your behalf. I just want to quote uh, what a person I love reading. I read Matthew Henry's commentary often. It's written 350 years ago, more than 350 years ago. But sometimes it just puts it so well. I think this is going to go up. Yeah, there we are. This is a quote. He writes, It is required that the gates and doors of the heart be open to him, not only as admission is given to a guest, but as possession is delivered to a rightful owner. Get that? He is your creator as well. All things were made by him. You do welcome Jesus in, but not really just as a guest, but as he so well puts, but delivering up possession to a rightful owner. You are the king of glory. I am yours, Lord. You are mine. That's how you truly become a Christian. That is true Christianity. It's not just some intellectual change. It's not even just a believism in Jesus or just I'd like an insurance policy for when I die. It's saying, Jesus, you're my Lord as well. Enter in, King of glory. Be Lord in this heart. I throw open the gates. He says this, this is the gospel call and demand that we let Jesus Christ, the King of glory, come into our souls and welcome him with hosannas. That's beautifully put, isn't it? This is the gospel call and, and demand. It's not, you can't negotiate this. That we let Jesus Christ, the King of glory, come into our souls and welcome him with hosannas. Now, I know many of you have done that, but just refresh yourself. You know you refresh things. You refresh computers and stuff, don't you? Refresh your spirit this morning and remind yourself that's what you did when you became a Christian. You welcomed the King of glory into your soul, but not merely as a guest, but as the rightful owner. Hallelujah. I am yours and you are mine, Lord. What's happened to you has happened to me. Everything you are is mine. That's glorious. That's glorious. That is the gospel. The Lord of glory comes into our lives. How does he do it? By the Holy Spirit. It's simple and it's clear. Your bodies are a temple. This whole psalm is about coming the tabernacle. Ultimately, it was used by Solomon as well when he built the temple. And he would have used this psalm then. It's about God coming into his temple. But your bodies are temples. Just look at 1 Corinthians 6.19. It's going to go up again. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you've received from God? You are not your own. So this Lord of glory comes into that temple, this temple. It's actually a valid link with this psalm. I'm not stretching something. This psalm is about that. It's about the Lord of glory coming into his temple. And his, your bodies are his temple. He made you and he wants to repossess you. And I want the Lord of glory in this temple. I want to throw open the gates of this heart and say, King of glory, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. 2 Corinthians 3.18 spells it out again. And we all who with unveiled faces, you can put that up, thanks. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's a bit of a complicated verse, but what it's basically saying, and I think it's an important point, is that the Holy Spirit is also the Lord. I hope you get that. 
which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we've got this term with a capital L, Lord. It's applied to the Father, it's applied to the Son, it's applied to the Holy Spirit. God is Trinitarian. One being, three persons. That is how he is. And so when the Holy Spirit enters you, it is God entering you. The Lord of glory comes into your heart when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. Jesus was the Lord of glory who entered heaven. Yes, it is Jesus you invited into your heart, but actually he comes by his Spirit. And it is real. When you become a Christian, your temple, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is the Lord of glory in you. The Lord of glory living in you. That ought to make a difference, and it does. That ought to begin to be tangible and real and make changes in your life, and it does. At the beginning of the year, let's all welcome the Lord of glory into our lives. I don't mind what's, where you're at, what questions you have about bits and pieces and what sort of a year you've had or what sort of fears you have or hopes you have in the year ahead. Let's just get this really clear. Let's get him in. Let's say, what a privilege to have the Lord of glory in my heart. The Holy Spirit is the Lord. The Lord who is the Spirit. He is the Lord of glory, changing you from one degree of glory to another. Spurgeon put it, Spurgeon was a Victorian preacher. He put it in his own inimitable way. His commentary on this verse, it's not on the PowerPoint, don't worry, it's just, just listen. He says, speaking directly, and I use his words to speak directly to you, the gates of your fortress heart need to be opened to let the King of Glory in. Some stand questioning, who is this King of Glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty. Be humble, open the gates, don't delay. If you can't turn the key, throw the door off its hinges. It's the Lord, let him in. That catches something of the passion we ought to feel. Look, if you can't turn the key, you think, oh, I'm a bit old, chuck it off its hinges, kick the door down, let him in. Don't stand questioning, who is this, what is this, I like to be intellectually satisfied. Well, you'd be intellectually dead then. Come in, let the Lord of glory in. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus died and rose again, and he wants to fully own the temple of your life, your body. He's, who is this king of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty. What's he say? If you can't turn the key, throw the door off its hinges. Amen. Let's look at the last point. The victorious Christ enters our church. That's the third point, and a Go up on the screen. Look at Revelation 3.20. Thank you if you could put that one up. Revelation 3.20. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Now, that's a famous verse. It was made famous by Holman Hunt's painting, uh, Victorian painter, And it's a famous challenging verse depicting Jesus outside a door that we need to open. Now, it's often used as a picture of the individual heart and life, which I've just been talking about. But actually, in its context, it's not to individuals, it's to a church. It's written to the Laodicean church there in Revelation 3, which is a lukewarm church. 
And in verse 14, it is very clear who this is knocking on the door. It is the Amen, the faithful one, the ruler of God's creation. The one knocking on the door is indeed the king of glory. He is the creator, the faithful one. But he's outside the church and he wants them to open the door and welcome him in. Welcome his presence amongst them so that he can fellowship with them again. It's a very powerful and poignant sort of picture. I want to come in and fellowship with you. Open the door and let me in. And so in a way, the psalm brings us full circle because this is a corporate thing. The psalm was originally written in a corporate context about the people of God bringing God from the periphery of their nation into the center in Jerusalem. And this is also a challenge to us that Jesus is welcomed by his spirit right into the center of our church life. That he's not peripheral. He's not kept outside. He's not kept outside the door. He's welcomed in. There is a definite prophetic parallel between what Israel experienced in the Old Testament and what the church would experience in the New Testament. But in a greater degree, really, first the natural, then the spiritual, etc. And, and that's, that's therefore, there's a powerful challenge here that churches, and we are one of them, need to welcome the Lord of glory into the midst of them. We need to open the door. We need to say, Lord, you are welcome here. We want your presence. We seek your face. That's another phrase you get a lot in the Bible, and you get it here in Psalm 24. The generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. I want to be amongst the generation who seek his face. David was that. This was a high spot in Israel's history. David was someone who, for all his flaws and weaknesses, sought God's face. He wanted God to be central to his people and to his own life. And he made every effort to make sure that the Lord of glory was in the center. That's why he celebrates it with this psalm after he'd been able to get the tabernacle and the ark right into Zion in Jerusalem. But it's the same for us. Jesus wants to be welcomed into his church. He wants to be central to his church. He isn't reluctant to meet with us. He desires to do it. He's standing at the door knocking, saying, let me in. I want fellowship with you. I want you to know my presence. I want you to seek my face. When you do seek my face, you will find me. So when we worship, when we come together to pray and to worship, as we're going to do this week, we need to expectantly, the goal is to seek his face. The goal is to have the Lord of glory amongst us, to know his presence amongst us, to let him be Lord of us and our lives. To say, Lord, we th- this week we want to throw the door open. This evening when we come to pray, we want to throw the door open and say, Lord of glory, you are welcome here. King of glory, you're welcome here. That's the theme of our prayer meetings this week. Open up, you ancient doors. Let the king of glory in. That's a good theme for a prayer week. When we gather this evening, I want you to be expectant that we're going to ask him, come in, Lord. Be Lord. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord. You can't dictate all that he's going to do when he comes in, but you want him in, and it will make a massive change when he does have freedom and come in to our lives.